0: All right, tonight, if you didn't grab a copy of your notes there in the back, we're going to talk about between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and so there it's the first covenant and the second covenant. I may use that terminology. Same thing: Old Testament, New Testament, first covenant, second covenant. We'll talk about the what's called the Silent Years. the The title of the lesson tonight's the Silent Years were not actually silent, so we'll talk a little bit about that. What happens between those? What's some of the connections between the Old and New Testament? We'll look at some of those things. I think we'll really hit that the hardest when we look at Hebrews. Because the whole book of Hebrews, it sounds like an Old Testament book, but it's actually in the New. The whole book of Hebrews explains, okay, people ask the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament? I mean, Christ on our timeline hadn't come and died yet, so how, how were they saved? Hebrews explains all of that. So we'll do most of that when we hit Hebrews. So we're walking every week. We're walking through each book of the Bible, and we're doing a book a week. So this week, we're taking a break from, we did an intro week before Genesis, and then this is our other week that's a little bit different. It's not a book of the Bible. We're just talking about, since we just wrapped up the Old Testament, next week we do Matthew. So now we're just talking about the roughly 400 years of time that was between the Old Testament, Malachi time period, and the New Testament. So we'll look at that. I will open us in prayer And then we'll jump in. Everybody got their coffee? Extra strong tonight, because you'll need that. Okay, Lord, thank you for everything that you put in your word. Even though we're not looking at a particular book tonight, we are going to be in a few different books and looking at what your word says, what are the Jewish expectations leading up to the time of Christ, what happened in those 400 years between... um, Malachi and Matthew. So we pray that your spirit would guide and bless this time. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Israel's timeline. So, in your notes, introduction setting, that first section will be there for a little bit, and then we'll jump into your second section. So, under the intro, here's basically Israel's timeline God calls Abraham from his country to Israel. He actually changes his name. And so, to Abraham and so you have after that you have the patriarchs Abraham Isaac and Jacob and then you have Joseph in Egypt God sends Joseph down to Egypt he becomes the number two guy then Joseph dies there's a new pharaoh that comes up Moses is born he's saved miraculously Moses eventually leads the people out of Egypt so there's the exodus then there's 40 years of living in the desert because of disobedience of the spies that went out to spy out the land. And they said, hey, we can't lick these guys. Ten of them said no. Two of them said yes. So there's a good uh, democracy at work for you. And the majority ruled and they didn't do it. And God punished the ten tribes that, uh, and let the older generation die out. So there's that. And then Joshua, Moses never takes the people into Israel. Joshua takes the people in. And then they have what's called the conquest where they take the land back. But they never fully obey, so they don't take all of it. So they leave little strongholds. They leave areas of demonic defilement. When the, the Old Testament constantly talks about the land being defiled, that's what it's often referencing. Uh, demonic activity, demonic influence that the people of God are allowing in. And so God lets it play. Says, okay, if you're going to do that, I'll give you what you want. And so then you have the period of the judges. So these are just different people that step up to the plate because... Um, they're needed for that time. Then you have Saul, who's the first king. Then you have David. Then you have David's son, Solomon. And then the kingdom divides into north and south after Solomon. 722 BC, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. Then Babylon conquers Assyria. So I reject the 10 lost tribes theory. They're, They're assimilated into Babylon. So they later have a chance to return. They don't just disappear. Babylon takes Assyria. And then, in three phases, Babylon takes the southern kingdom. So if you're a date nerd, that's 605, 597, 586 is the last one. Most people just know that date, but that's only the last of three. 605, 597, 586 BC, the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. The Medo-Persians, which is a combined empire, then conquers Babylon. And that's when the Jews are sent in a few different phases back to Jerusalem. They don't all return. But the remnant that wants to go back, they go back, they rebuild. So that, right there, is Genesis through Malachi. That's the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, or the First Testament. So next comes a period of time called the silent years. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. They're called that because there's no active special revelation that's new from God that we know of. At least not anything that's written down for us. So... If God was speaking to individual people, it wasn't for all people of all time. There was no, that's the distinction, by the way. Anything that's in here is for all Christians of all time. And so he wasn't coming up with anything. He wasn't, there was no revelation during that time for everyone who followed him. So that's why it's called the silent years. But regarding the time period, so it's from about 415 BC, somewhere in there. I'm not a date nerd, but that's the closest stab I could take. Until the Gospels, so about a period of about 400 years, I'm making the case tonight that God was not completely silent. And we're not going to go into Daniel very much, but we'll just take a glance at it real quick. So go to Daniel, so Old Testament, chapter 2, and we'll look at a little bit of Daniel 2. We'll start there. So who's the only person in existence who's able to tell with perfect accuracy, the begin uh, the end from the beginning or something before it happens god that's actually one of the fingerprints of his legitimacy that he's outside our time dimension and he can see it all kind of like a float above a parade if you want to think of it that way god sees everything plans everything has it all set up and so who can tell something before it happens with perfect accuracy well only god can do that or God's prophets in the Old Testament, if he's he's leading them. In fact, that was the litmus test in Deuteronomy. They said, if they say something and it doesn't happen, they're not from God. (laughs) If they say it, but the standard wasn't 100% accuracy, then it was from God. So, in Daniel 2, and a couple other chapters in Daniel, we're not going to do a Daniel study tonight, but God deals with the silent years before they happen. So, people say, well, God was totally silent from Malachi to Matthew. Well, no, Daniel actually, some of the prophecies in Daniel deal with that time period. Not every detail, but just some general kingdom stuff. Look at chapter 2 of Daniel, uh, verse 1. There's this vision that the king has. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 is where we are. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. King said, hey, I've had a dream. My spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. That was you know, the greeting of respect, I guess, at the time. Tell your servants the dream. We'll give you the interpretation. So hey, tell us the dream you had. We'll tell you what it means. Kind of like a mentalist. I need to hear what you're, and then I'll make up the, the, the meaning. The king answered, but he wouldn't let him do that. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known to m- the dream to me and its interpretation. So he's saying, not only do you have to tell me what it means, you have to tell me the dream I had. And I'm not going to tell you what it was. You shall be cut in pieces and your houses will be made an ash heap. So he's pretty Intense. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you will receive honor. Uh, you will receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell the dream and its interpretations. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream. And we, it's almost funny. I mean, if you're one of the soothsayers or whatever, you're not, it's not funny. But it's kind of funny. And so it says in verse 10, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. No one on earth knows what you dreamed. You have to tell us your dream first. Look at verse 11. There's no other God who can. Uh, tell it to the king except the, there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Verse 13, so the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. So he's just gonna wipe them, all his guys out because he's sick of them. If you guys can't, if you're really psychic, then tell me what I dreamed. If you're not, I'm gonna kill you. So he starts killing them all. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 16, so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel says, hey, Stop killing everybody, let me f- talk to my guys, we'll figure it out, and then we'll come meet with you. So then uh, he finally meets with the king, verse 26 of Daniel 2, Daniel 2 is where we're at. Verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you, so his God-given Jewish name is Daniel, Danny She has the name of El or Elohim in there. So Belteshazzar is his, all the guys that got deported to Babylon and taken captive were re-given new names, and it honored these pagan gods, these demons, really. So, so uh, to Bel, Baal, Belteshazzar. Um, so, they had a dual name there. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Now, look at what Daniel does. Very interesting. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. So he's saying, I didn't figure this out because I'm smart. My God showed me. He knows. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while you're on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone alive but for our sakes who make known the interpretation of the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart you o king verse 31 we're watching and behold a great image and he says this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you its form was awesome its head was of fine gold its chest were, uh, and arms of silver its belly and thighs of bronze its legs of iron its feet partly of iron and partly of clay iron mixed with clay you watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then he goes on and he explains this vision. So if you look at the prophecies, we're not gonna do this tonight, but if you look at the prophecies in, you wanna go back and do this later, chapter two, chapter seven, and chapter eight of Daniel. Two, seven, and eight. Then you basically have most of the next 400 big chunks of the major kingdoms, the major players of the next 400 years, the so-called silent years. So God actually, they're not totally silent. God gave them an advance and said, hey, this is gonna happen. You have some very interesting parallels from those prophecies with the next kingdoms that would rise to power. So first, uh, if you wanna look this up later, we're not gonna go into detail here, but first you have the Babylonian Empire. That's here. And then you have the Medo-Persian Empire. That also occurs part of this time period. And then you have, so Babylon. Uh, Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians combined. And then you have the Greek Empire. Now they're important because they begin to influence Jewish culture, which leads to a lot of the strife in the Jewish population leading up to the time of Christ. So Alexander the Great, with the Greeks, divided, so he conquered a ton of area. By the time he was, I didn't look this up, when did he die? He died really young. And he conquered by what? His 30s or something. He'd done everything. Um, divided his kingdom up into his four generals. So these four guys divvied up his land. Well, then you have Jewish, uh, if you fast forward a little more, you have Jewish Maccabean rule. If you read first and second Maccabees, it's not in our Bible, but it's pretty decent history of this time period of about a hundred years leading up before Christ. Uh, And so that is a response to some of this Greek influence. So the Greeks are influencing the Jews. The Jews are losing their ethnic culture, some of their traditions, their religion, and so they're going to Greek culture. And so the Greeks, during part of this time period, they make it illegal to circumcise your kids. So what did the Jews do, right? That's part of the deal. And so, uh, you know, there's kickback. And then the fourth empire, so Babylon, Persians and the Medes, the Greeks, and then the fourth one's the Roman Empire, about 63 BC with Pompeii and everybody, so they come in, they take the area. So when I say that the silent years were not actually silent, um, that's what I'm talking about. God had already spoken about some major things that were going to happen, and so then he decided to put them in the book of Daniel ahead of time, and he does that all over scripture. So okay, second section, content. The Old Testament ends with things left unfinished. So if you're a Jew and you have the Old Testament and you have Genesis through Malachi, just the Old Testament, you end the Old Testament with this this longing in your heart for some things that are left undone and you don't even know what all they are. You can put your finger on some of them, like the expectation of the Messiah, he's not there yet, but some of them you can't even put your finger on. You're just going, I have no clue, but there's something inside of me that feels empty or unfulfilled. I don't even know, I know some of what it is. I don't even know all of what it is. And so there's things left unfinished. So number one, there's unexplained ceremonies. Is something the Old Testament leaves unfinished. Unexplained ceremonies. Like the rituals and the sacrifices. Have y'all ever read some of those? So write this down. We're not gonna go into it tonight. Leviticus one through seven. You go read through some of those ceremonies and you think, what in the world in Leviticus one through seven Okay, the grain offering, how is that different from the sin offering? And why these weird, specific details? Why are you so picky, God? And why does blood have to be shed for the payment of sins, for the covering of sins? What, what's the deal with all that? And so there's some weird stuff. Why are we doing these sacrifices? This question is left unanswered. They simply did it because God told them they had to. It was an obedience to God thing. But they didn't know all of what it would mean. So that's it, unexplained ceremonies. And you get to the end of the Old Testament and the Jews still didn't understand them all. They couldn't, we don't until the Hebrews explains, until Christ. Number two, Old Testament leaves another thing unfinished. Um, unachieved purposes, unachieved purposes. For example, look at Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. There's a new covenant that God talks about. Okay, so when I say Old Testament or First Covenant, what am I talking about? What do I mean when I say that? Abrahamic covenant is a mass. it's the beginning of it, yes. And God puts him to sleep. He's not awake to do his part of the, God puts him to sleep and says, no, 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 I'll do it. Yeah, and uh, Moses, the law, when he gives the 10 commandments, which is not the law in and of itself, it's a summary of the law, but he gives the law and he expounds on it more. Deuteronomy is kind of a commentary and, and more explanation of what the law is. So God says, hey, here's what it looks like to deal, have a covenant relationship with me. It's all about relationship. I want a relationship with you and here's what it looks like to have a covenant relationship with me under the old covenant, the Old Testament, the first covenant. And so look at Jeremiah 31, 31. There's a mention of a new covenant and so one of the things the Old Testament leaves unfinished is unachieved purposes and specifically this new covenant deal. Look at Jeremiah 31, the Old Testament, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made, what's he referring to? Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. What's he talking about? Abraham covenant, the, the, you know, the law, all these different things. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. There you go, he starts referencing Moses' this time. My covenant, which they broke though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No more will every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, "Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So there's this mention of this new covenant, but the Old Testament ends. Do they get to experience that? No, so that's left undone. It's... It's an unachieved purpose. So the Old Testament leaves things unfinished. Number one, unexplained ceremonies. Number two, unachieved purposes. Number three, unsatisfied longings. This is amazing. Look at this. So unsatisfied longings or desires. Look at Hebrews. I know that sounds like it's in the Old Testament, but it's actually in the New. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. How are y'all doing temperature-wise? Hot, hot. All the men say I'm hot and the women say no, I'm cold. What? Okay. You ask 13 Baptists, you get 14 opinions. Okay. Unsatisfied desires, Hebrews ten one through four. Unsatisfied desires is something that the Old Testament left unfinished you say, why are we in a New Testament book? Well, because it explains so much of how the Old Testament um, was incomplete, was never meant to be forever permanent. Let me say it that way. And the New Testament uh, comes in and replaces it. So Hebrews 1 through four. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, it was just a taste, a hint, but they didn't get to experience it all. So think about how how unfinished the Old Testament was. And not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. It can't do it. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if it made you perfect when you went through this blood sacrifice, there would be the end of it. But they would had to do it over and over and over. And there was one specific sacrifice in Leviticus 1 through 7. They, they did it every day. They did it in the morning and the evening. Okay, um, For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Remember that phrase, consciousness of sins. We'll talk about that later. But in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Well, wait a second. Then why in the world did God ask him to do that? So, for example, uh, part of the guys that do the Israel tours, Uh, that I went on with some friends back in 2015. The pastor who led that went himself before he was going to schedule any of these tours just to see everything himself for the first time. So they're sitting down with some people who are teaching them and showing them where the things were in Israel, and they were not believers. They're just ethnic, religious Jews, but they're not uh, completed Jews, I would call them. They haven't found their Messiah yet. And they were talking about Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. it's only once a year. All sin is atoned for, it's paid for, okay? And they were talking about going through the ceremonies, but then his daughter said, yeah, but I've always had this problem. We go through Yom Kippur, the sin's atoned for, I, I, I get that, but then I have to wait another year. So, so what if the next day I do something horrible or, or I dishonor God or I sin? It's just one, it will just takes one, right? Just one. Doesn't matter how big or small, it just takes one cent. And then I have to wait the whole rest of the year, and this was a wait on her. Of course, this pastor had the chance to share the gospel and go, listen, there's an answer for that. But I think this is by some of these things are by design. The Old Testament was a tutor, a teacher to bring us to Christ. And so some of this was by design that God left these things unfulfilled. Look at 1 Peter 1 10 through 12. This drove some of the Old Testament guys crazy because they, they knew God was gonna do something in the future but they didn't know what it was and, and I think it must have been frustrating for them in the time period leading up to Christ to see these things left unfinished, they're undone. Look at 1 Peter 1, Peter actually talks about this, 10 through 12. Of this salvation, now what's Peter referring to? So this is New Testament, right? What's Peter referencing? Jesus Christ, the blood he shed, the full, you know, new covenant. Of this salvation, the prophets, now which prophets is he talking about? Old Testament, guys. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what, so what are the circumstances? Searching what or what manner of time, so the timing of it. The spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. Now Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, this Messiah that they're waiting on, this savior figure. So Christ just means Messiah. So when he testified beforehand the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow to them, the prophets, it was revealed that not for themselves, but to us, to you. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So you see what he said? Peter's saying, saying, these guys knew that they didn't fully understand even some of the stuff they were writing down in the Old Testament. That it wasn't all just for them. There was a future fulfillment. So this stuff's left undone. So imagine how frustrating if you, for a second, if your trust in God lapsed or, or you hesitated. Think of how frustrating that could have been. It was very frustrating. Uh, let me show you an illustration of this. Look at Isaiah, so go Old Testament. Hang a hard left. And go Isaiah 52. Here's a, probably one of the best examples of this. So these prophets write, the, okay, so Isaiah's a prophet, right? What did Peter just talk about? Old Testament prophets, correct? Who's Isaiah? An Old Testament prophet. So he's writing these things in 52 and 53. He has no clue what in the world it means, not fully, he doesn't know, he knows that it comes from God. He knows he's supposed to write it down, but he doesn't know everything. It means you don't find out till Christ. Look at fifty-two, thirteen. A lot of people say Isaiah 53. Well, it actually starts in 52. It might even start in 50 because there's some references to plucking out his beard, which I think they did to Christ. And so, um, ah. if you ever watch, and you should only do it probably once because it's hard to watch, If you ever watch The Passion of the Christ, and and you just, it's gut-wrenchingly tough to watch Christ endure that for us. It was the cross, not just the physical suffering, but to endure all all of that. But all the movies, including The Passion of the Christ, it was worse than that. It was even worse than that. (sighs) Look at some of these Old Testament prophecies, 52:13 of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. "Behold my servant will deal prudently, he will be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred, more, damaged more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Look at 53. Uh, Look at 53.2. He will grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. He's not an attractive guy. So these movies that have, what's the guy's name, Jim Caviezel? Did I get that right? He's pretty handsome, dude. If you're securing your masculinity, you can say someone's handsome. (laughs) And you can wear pink. So he's a pretty handsome guy, right? Well, Jesus, that's, no, Jesus did not He's not attractive like that. He's plain Jane. Judas has to kiss him to identify which guy he was. He's plain. It says, um, he has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised. He's rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's well acquainted with grief. Verse four, he's borne our griefs. (laughs) He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, the son, this Messiah figure, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse nine, they made his... Grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. The Gospels talk about how that played out to be fulfilled. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Look at verse 10. But it pleased the Lord, it pleased the Father, to bruise him and to put him to grief. So there's this, there's this amazing thing that Isaiah, one of the prophets that Peter's talking about, writes down, he doesn't understand. He has no clue what all that's gonna mean in the future we don't find out till many 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 years later. So do you realize how they must have longed for the fulfillment of this, but by the end of the Old Testament they never got to experience it. So put yourself in their shoes for a second. I think sometimes we're hard on the Jews in the New Testament. And yes, you have to trust Christ to be saved. And I'm not saying they were saved because they were Jews, but sometimes we're hard on them and but if we'd grown up culturally like they had, we've, we we might have fallen for some of the same struggled with some of the same things. Look at Hebrews 9, back to Hebrews. I know we're Bible drilling it here, but 9, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Or we'll write that down if you just want to listen. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Here's why they didn't understand till later. Look, but Christ came as high priest. So you had all these high priests, and one would die. The mortality rate of humans is what? 100%. You're going to die at some point. So the high priest would die. They had to replace him. Jesus is always high priest. Forever. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, building, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Remember it saying the blood of goats and calves lack the power to forgive sin, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with, well, then why did God ask him to do that? Well, it pointed forward to him. It left something intentionally unfinished so that Christ could step in and, and finish it, and when he did, it was finished, and that's true. I mean, at the cross, when he says, it is finished, I mean, that is, if anything, that's an understatement. It was completely finished, but with his own blood, verse 12, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the So even if the Jews would have accepted him, which mostly they didn't, some of them did, but as a group, they rejected their own Messiah. We'll look at why later in the application section. Even if they would have received him, he still would have had to shed his blood to pay for our sins. I know this is a coulda, woulda, shoulda, but there still has to be blood shed. They would have killed him in the Holy of Holies willingly, but knowing what they were doing, killing their own Messiah in the Holy of Holies and spilled the blood there, it would have still had to be blood. Having obtained uh, obtained eternal redemption, verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the mediator, the go-between, the guy who does it. He's the mediator of the new covenant. You see that? By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the, what's the next words? First covenant. So how were people saved under the Old Testament? That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Christ's blood, the timeline doesn't matter. It applies to everyone who belongs to him, period. And so... So that's it, unexplained ceremonies, unachieved purposes, unsatisfied longings, and then the last thing, the Old Testament leaves things left unfinished as uh, unfulfilled prophecies. We won't go into these, but basically there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that are left unfulfilled. So again, put yourself in the Jew's shoe or anyone reading the Old Testament before Christ. A lot of these prophecies that says, God says, I'll do this, I'll restore this, I'll forgive sin, they're they're not done yet. You have uh, prophecies of judgment, prophecies of this coming Messiah. If you wanna write this down, uh, we'll, we'll read it later. Malachi 4, four through six. So the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, verse four through six, talks about Elijah's gonna come. Well, where is he? You know, they're waiting on him. So prophecies, unfulfilled prophecy is an important thing that's left undone with the Old Testament. So by the way, if you... Um, under the prophecies deal, just write LXX, capital L, capital X, capital X, right there. That's the Septuagint, the 70 guys in Alexandria who worked on the translation of the Old Testament, which was written in what? Does anybody know? Hebrew, small sections in Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew, so pretty much Hebrew. They translated from Hebrew to Greek. Why? And by the way, uh, this is, well, I shouldn't go there. <laughs> the Jews at the time were very upset. How dare you change God's word? Well, Greek was the language spoken in that day. And so they were saying, we need something in modern, in that day's English. We need something in our modern language that's spoken by the world. And and so they translated it into Greek. And so uh, not everyone knew Hebrew. It became more of a ceremonial type of language. So I'm not going <laughs> to go into modern applications of that. But get off track there. But uh, so what's significant about that? Do you know when the Septuagint was done, when they translated this from Hebrew to Greek, the Old Testament? B.C. It was about 250, somewhere in there. It's a couple hundred years before Christ. Well, what's, what does that mean? What's the significance of that with prophecy? Why is that important? Well, because a lot of the guys came in afterward, after Christ, they came in and they said, Of course your Old Testament has these prophecies that look like they're about Christ. They went in later and added those. You see what I'm saying? They added them later and put them in so they'd look like Jesus. And then they go, see, these were already written. So they talk about Jesus. No, 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 no. Well, first off, we have multiple proofs against that. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those also legitimize the old dating of of parts of the Old Testament. But what's the best defense against that that we have? The LXX in Roman numerals. The 70, the Septuagint. They took this and translated it into Greek. It's all in there. This was like 200 years before Christ, 250 years before Christ. It's all in there. So you can't can't look at the the Old Testament and say, well, those prophecies were just, they added those later. No, because you have this work that's re-recorded. It's done. It's stamped. So anyway, so that's the importance of that document. So, okay, Jewish expectations under content, Next section, Jewish expectations. So you're a Jew. What expectations do you have leading up to the time of Christ? Well, your expectations are going to be flavored by whatever group under the Jewish structure that you were in. So here's the different groups. Leading up to the time of Jesus, you see some different Jewish groups form in and around Jerusalem. So here's the first one. Not in order, but whatever. The first one's the Pharisees. You may have heard of them. What do you know about the Pharisees? Huh? Legalism. Yep, they got trapped into legalism. They made the law an idol. Anybody else? Religious leaders. Okay, so the Pharisees defended the Jewish way of life against all foreign influence. Remember earlier what I would said was influencing massively Jewish culture, Greek culture, the Hellenists, Hellenism. So they were, they were if you wanted to go participate in no kids in here, right? Okay. If you wanted to go participate in the gym and make the business connections there or the Olympic games or something like that, you did it in the nude. And if you were circumcised, you were made fun of and chunked and they wouldn't even talk to you. So um, so some of the Jews would, I'm not going to go into detail, would just say, make it look like they weren't. Anyway, we're not going there. But, and so they would, or they would not circumcise their sons because they go, I want my sons to make those business. Connect-. So they were walking away from Jewish culture. And so um, that caused a huge issue. So the Pharisees said, uh-uh, we don't want to put up with no foreign influence, pure Judaism, that's it. Uh, they were strong nationalists politically. So if you know what that means, they were strong nationalists. It's, it's We're pro-Israel and screw everybody else. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Um, we're pro-Israel and the heck with everybody else. That's probably not. A, um, I'm sorry. Um, they believed in the Old Testament, so they did believe that. Okay, the Old Testament. This is God's word, but they turned. That's honestly, to be candid with you, that's my biggest struggle is my tongue. Um, every Christian has their struggle. Trust me, mine is my tongue. I say things. Like it's like toothpaste; you can't get it back in the, in the mouth, and ah, it's out there. I'm sorry. Um, but turn, that's probably my biggest one, but turn religion into a focus on the rules instead of a relationship with the God who gives the rules. So this was their problem. This is why a lot of them missed the Messiah. Uh, group number two, Sadducees. If you want a stupid mnemonic device, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see, because there's no resurrection, you know, so, okay. But that's a good way to remember them. They were the wealthy, more social group who looked for any excuse So they were kind of the opposite of the Pharisees in that regard. They looked for any excuse to replace Jewish tradition with other influences. They rejected the supernatural things, which would include resurrection. No miracles, no angels, no resurrection. They opposed the Pharisees in a lot of these areas. So it's Pharisees, Sadducees, and they just, man, they fought like cats and dogs. Group number three, you had the scribes. You had the scribes. Uh, they could be Pharisees, I believe, but they were, they were distinct. They were basically the seminary professors of their day, what we'd call today, in today's terms. They were caught up in legalism. They were obsessed with the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. Have you ever been pulled over by a police officer that's concerned with the spirit of the law? And the way he treats you, you can tell. Now, have you ever been pulled over by an officer who's obsessed with the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law? And you know the difference. And the way he treats you based on two totally different things. Um, and then the last group, number four, the Herodians. Herod, the Herodians. They were basically a political group wanting to maintain power through keeping the Herods on the throne in that area. So this is the Herodians. So their interests were mostly political. What's the problem with that? Their main concern wasn't spiritual, it was political. Spiritual faithfulness to God has political implications. Don't misunderstand me. But they weren't, no, no, no. The spiritual stuff, we can talk about that later. That's not a really a big deal. We're just concerned with our political gain. That, so there's two different things. Um, the Septuagint was written during this time period. And also, if you've heard of the Apocrypha of the Old Testament, that was written during this time period, some of those things. These were books that have no indication, the Apocrypha, of being inspired by the Holy Spirit So Tobit, Judith, 2nd Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, the book of Enoch, if you've heard of that, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, uh, those. Just before Jesus is born, about 19 AD, the temple starts to be rebuilt under Herod. Y'all heard of Herod? Okay, Um, well there's a few, but in 19 AD, the temple starts to be rebuilt. I think it took about 10 years. It took longer than that to finish all the decorations, but I think the most construction, basically when you could say, okay, this is basically finished. I think it took about a decade. So for the Jews, what are you thinking? It's a massive hope of full restoration, isn't it? Hey, we're getting our, and it was way better. Remember when they sent from Babylon, they sent the captives back and they rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah, they rebuilt Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. Remember that? They did a dedication ceremony and there was a lot of loud noises from the people. Do you remember that story? If you've never read it, there was a, the people went nuts. They went crazy. But it it records something very interesting and sad. The younger people who hadn't lived long enough through the 70-year captivity in Babylon to remember the original temple, Solomon's temple, they, uh, I think we talked about this a, a few weeks ago, they were cheering. Eh, this is great, this looks great. The older people who did remember the older temple were making as loud of a noise, but they were weeping. Because it wasn't nearly what the old one was. And they were thinking, this is it? And so the mixture of noises, you couldn't tell who was happy and who was sad. It was a weird, weird, awkward deal. And so you're a Jew, you went through all this history, you're aware of this history, and then Herod comes in and he starts to rebuild. And it's nice. He starts to rebuild the temple, uh, part of the temple area, and fix it back up. So if you're a Jew, what are you thinking? You get pumped up. You go, oh, this is, fantastic, great, this is good. Um, and so there's this massive hope of restoration. Hey, you know, we're back. You, you ever have a team that's the, the underdog and then you finally, you know, A&M was a whipping boy in the Southeast Conference for, for years. The, when's the last national championship we won? I think when it was when Hitler was in power. So <laughs> people would just, I'm serious, people would just whip. And if we showed up to the first half, we wouldn't show up to the second half. And then we joined the SEC and then, and anyway, so it's good when you have, last year we had this freak of a year. We should have made it to the championship, whatever, the final four. But we had this weird year where we just played lights out and things. So it's cool when you have the underdog and then you come back and you go, hey, like we look at UT now and we go, we're bigger than you now, student population wise. Remember when it was the other way around? You know, so we, you have that, you have that, um, you know what I'm talking about. Hutzpah there's a Jewish word, chutzpah. Um, so if you're a Jew during this time period, you're kind of getting, it's a mixture of both, but you're kind of getting amped up. You see this temple being rebuilt. And uh, think of what the Jewish people have been through. I mean, they've been killed, they've been ransacked, they've been taken slaves, they've been freed from slavery. They have these up and then down and up and down. They finally make it back into the land. Um, the Maccabean Revolt. They have about a hundred years where they pretty much get to rule themselves So it's fan, until Rome comes in. So they're thinking, oh man, this is fantastic. So even though they're in the land again, there are threats on both sides of the Jews leading up to the time of Jesus. You have Rome on the west side, and most of our history books are western, so they don't talk about the east much. I don't understand that. You have a massive empire over on the other side, the Parthians. So on the west side, if you're looking at a map, on the west you have Rome, and yes, they're in authority of the area of Jerusalem during Jesus' days, but there was back and forth. In fact, Herod, when he's named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate, I think, by Rome, he didn't even, for a few years, he doesn't even get to go to Jerusalem. Why? The Parthians had kicked their rear end back. So there's Rome over here, but there's this kingdom nobody ever talks about for some weird reason over here called the Parthians. And, and there, there's this back and forth throughout the years leading up to Christ uh, during that time period. So, so they're in the middle of this tug of war. They're in this tough spot. Uh, so anyway, which is why, by the way, have you ever read the story of Herod, the Christmas story, and the Magi come in and they say, where's he who's been born king of the Jews? That's a slap in the face to Herod because he had to kind of like bribe his way there. Where's he who's been born the king of the Jews? They come from the east, probably the Parthian Empire, possibly. They come from the east to look for the next king of the Jews. That's who they're looking for. So that's why there's so much tension, and Herod kills, because Herod's thinking, I mean, he's between a rock and a hard spot. He's supposed to represent Rome, and, and, well, if you're looking this way, Rome's over here on the west, but then there's this other empire that could come back at any time and push them back, the Parthians. And so here comes these guys from this area, And they go, hey, where's the king of the Jews? He's been titled the king of the Jews. So you understand some of the tension. So things were, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If you're a Jew in Israel in the time leading up to Jesus, it's a, uh, you're in a pressure cooker. It's what it was like. Culturally, religiously, I mean everything. It's a pressure cooker. On top of that, the Jewish hope gets damaged again. Uh, Just write this down, we won't go there. But if you look at Genesis 49.10, Genesis 49.10. There's a prophecy at the end of Genesis about uh, Shiloh. Uh, The the authority won't be taken from the Jewish people. Now, later they take that to mean the Sanhedrin probably until Shiloh comes. Well, the Jewish commentaries clearly understood Shiloh to be the Messiah that they were waiting on. So what did that prophecy say to them, they thought? It said, well, our legal authority won't be stripped from us until our Messiah comes onto the scene. And then it'll be a moot point anyway, because our is here. You follow? What happens in um, leading up to the time of Christ? What does Rome do? Rome comes up to the Sanhedrin and says, I'll take that authority. Thank you. Uh, you can s- settle some little morality issues, some small issues, but you don't have the right to capital punishment anymore. In fact, Josephus writes about that when they tried, I think it was James, Jesus' brother, if I'm remembering correctly, um, Josephus, in some of his writings, talks about James and he says the Sanhedrin was going to put him to death. And there's a guy that runs to the Roman authority and says and tells on them because they can't do that, and they couldn't. They weren't allowed to legally. Rome had taken that authority from them. And so Rome strips the, the, the Sanhedrin as the Jewish leadership council of much of their legal authority. Which is why, look real quickly at John 18. That's why they say this, what they say in John 18. That's the background. Look at John 18, the Gospel of John, verse 31 and 32. John 18, 31 and 32. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him. So they've arrested Jesus, the, the temple guard. They've taken him to Pilate you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Well, yeah. So Rome comes in, you're a Jew, you're trying to get your hopes up, and then Rome comes in and takes that power from you. So that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by which death he would die. Why does that matter? If the Jews kill him for blasphemy, what method would they use? Stoning. What what does Jesus say? I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die on a Cursed is he who dies on a tree. I'm gonna be lifted up. It wasn't stoning. It was death by crucifixion. So that's part of that deal. So God was in control of all this. That's why, look at John 19:12. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend because whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So they're trying to put Pilate in this, I mean, he's already there, but in this tough spot to say, hey, if you don't do something about this Jesus guy who claims to be a king, that's treason. So, it, so the Jews knew they couldn't get Jesus on, um, on blasphemy charges against God, although that's what they thought He was doing, because that authority had been taken from them. so they had to get him on treason charges under the Roman government against Caesar. So that's what they're trying, that's the game they're trying to play. Well, that's the background to it. They're bombed. Their, their political, their legal authority, a lot of it, had been totally stripped from them. So the Jewish hope of being able to rule themselves again shapes their expectation about the Messiah or the Christ. But they did have an expectation that the Messiah was coming. Don't go there, but just write it down if you want to look at it later. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. So that's the last book of the Old Testament that we just covered. Malachi 3, 1 through 3 talks about this expectation of this Messiah figure. They're waiting on him. They're not sure when he's going to show up. So they didn't just want a spiritual savior and a teacher they wanted a political savior to get them out from under Roman authority. That's the, and that was part of their struggle. They had an expectation, another Jewish expectation. They had an expectation about Elijah. Uh, write this down if you want to. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, same book. Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6. The very end of Malachi, it says, I'm gonna send you Elijah before the coming and dreadful, something like that, day of the Lord. I'm gonna send Elijah. So Elijah's coming They had an expectation about the prophet, this figurehead they called the prophet. Uh, Write down Deuteronomy 18, I know we're flying here, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. That's Moses' last book that he records, and he has this thing to say about the prophet. Hey, this prophet's coming, and they just called him the prophet. They didn't know what else to call him, I don't think. So the Messiah's coming, Elijah's coming, this other figure, maybe, if he's separate, we're not sure, called the prophet, he's coming. So John the Baptist, let's look at him. He's the guy who connects a lot of this. Okay, y'all ever seen a relay race? What do you carry in a relay race? Baton. John the Baptist, John the baptizer, is the baton guy. He's, He's taking the Old Testament anticipation and expectation of the Jews, and he's passing the baton. Who does he pass it to? The Messiah, he's, he points to him and says, hey, this is your guy, this is who you've been waiting on. So that's, that's what John the Baptist does. He's Baptist, right, so there we go. Uh, no, he's literally, he was John the Baptizer. This is not a denominational deal, but. So John the Baptist, um, look at John 1, six through eight. Here was his role. He played a massive role because he's connecting the Old Testament and expectations to the, to the Gospels. John 1, six through eight. We'll be in John for a while, so I'll just go ahead and start reading. John 1, six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, so John is not the Messiah. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. You see his role? He's the baton guy. He's passing the baton. Look at John 1, 19 through 25. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, so down to the Jordan where he was baptizing, to ask him, who are you? He confessed and didn't deny, but he confessed. He said, I'm not the Christ. In other words, I'm not this Messiah guy you're looking for. Remember, they were expecting him, so he says, I'm not him. Then they asked him, what are you? Then, are you Elijah? There's the other guy we said they were waiting on, right? He said, nope. He said, I am not Elijah. Then they said, number three, are you the prophet? That's from the Deuteronomy passage. And he answered, no. So he's not. He had a lot in common with Elijah's ministry that he would do later, that, but wasn't the same guy. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am. And then he quotes another Old Testament passages. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's quoting Isaiah there. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. Remember that group? They, they wanted to know, hey, what's this guy baptizing? What's this all about? And they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, these guys they're waiting on? So John answered, uh, so, so that's the deal. So John the Baptist's ministry is similar to Elijah's, but he clearly says he's not Elijah. So Elijah's ministry is still not finished. I don't know this. I think he's probably one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, because if you look at the miracles that those two guys do during the end times, it's Moses and Elijah. I mean, it seems to be, it's the stuff Moses did and the stuff Elijah did. Um, they call down fire. They stop the heavens from raining. They, they're able to do things that seem to point to Moses and Elijah. Okay, look at John: 129. I know we're flying. But uh, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the baton pass. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but so that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. Now look at verse 35 of John 1. Again, the, ver- the next day, very next day. John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. What's John doing for these guys? What? Act like you're yelling at at, at your your husband or a guy. He's pointing them to Jesus. He's saying, this is the Messiah you've been waiting on. That's it. So he says, looking at Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Look at verse 37. So what happens? The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. They followed Jesus. So there you go. He's passing the baton. John the Baptist's role was to point people to Jesus who would become their sacrificial lamb. So all the Old Testament expectations, and John says, here you go, this guy right here. So last section of your notes, application. Oh, one more thing. Sorry. Look at John 3. Look at John 3, 1 through 10. Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus by night. He's, got, he's a rabbi, he's a Jewish teacher. He's pretty high up and he's got some questions for Jesus. So look at this, John 3, 1 through 10. <clears throat> there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs un- uh, that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus answered and said to him, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he says, he's saying, What are you getting at? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's your physical birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your second birth, your rebirth in God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell from where it's coming or where it goes. So is, just like that, so is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, listen, listen. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So there's an expectation from Jesus that at least the Jewish teachers should understand that he's their Messiah and about the salvation that he brings, this new birth. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. So I didn't have time to chase that down. But apparently from the Old Testament, there should have been that Jesus has this expectation on Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of the Old Testament? You don't understand these these things I'm trying to explain to you? Which is interesting. Okay, last section, application. Application. So if the Jews had these expectations, then why did they miss Christ? Look at Matthew 23, 37. Many Jews miss their own Messiah. Why? Look at Matthew 23, 37. I'll tell you what I don't think it is from Scripture, and then I'll tell you what I do think it is from Scripture. Matthew 23, 37. This is Jesus talking. He's approaching Jerusalem if I'm not mistaken, I think this is his last time. Yeah, he's approaching Jerusalem his last time. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. Well, who's that? Old Testament prophets. I sent you all these guys, and what did you do to them? You killed them. You didn't listen to them. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But what? But you were not willing. So I don't think It's that they didn't have an opportunity. Okay, look at John 5. I think we could point out more than a few reasons tonight, but I just want to show you a few things, and then we're done. John 5, 1 through 12. So hang a right. John 5, 1 through 12. Reason number one. So I've showed you what I don't think it is, but let me show you from Scripture what I think it is. John 5, 1 through 12, reason number one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem, by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Because an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So you just had to beat the next guy to the water. It's like, why are you tying your shoes? You can't outrun a lion. And the guy says, I don't have to outrun the lion. I just have to outrun you. That's why I'm tying my shoes. So it's that kind of a deal. You could uh, face palm the guy behind you and jump in first, and you were the one who were healed, who was healed. Now, a certain man who was there had an infirmity of 38 years. I mean, this guy had been sick for a while. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took his bed, and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. What are you not supposed to do on the Sabbath? You're supposed to rest. You're not supposed to do work. So that already we, we can sense that this problem's coming. The Jews, therefore, here we go. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. What, did this, what just happened to this guy? He just got healed. What are the Jews concerned about? working on the Sabbath. What's their focus on? The letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Um, he answered and said to them, he, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. That guy told me to, was his answer. Then they said to him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? So their focus was on the rules, not the rule giver. So what do they miss? Well, they ignore a healing. They also miss Christ, the Messiah. Why? Because they're so dad blame focused on the rules that they missed the giver of the rules look at 5 13 through 18 john five thirteen through 18 but the one who was healed didn't want uh did not know who it was for jesus had left he'd withdrawn a multitude being in that place afterward jesus found him in the temple and said to him so probably later that day see you've been made well sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you the man departed and told the jews that it was jesus who had made him well for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Wow. Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, my father's been working until now and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father making himself equal with God, which was a charge of blasphemy. So I think that's the first reason. Look at John five thirty-one through 47. if I bear witness of myself, my witness isn't true. There's there's a few witnesses Jesus talks about that bear witness to he's the Messiah. Um, There's another who bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. So there's the first witness. But I don't perceive, uh, I do not need to receive testimony from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, the works. So that's the second witness. The works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And here's the third witness, verse 37. The Father himself who sent me. He's testified of me. Remember at his baptism, he even said, this is my son. I'm well pleased. He gives his badge of honor and confirmation. You have neither heard his voice in any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you don't believe, talking about himself. You search the, what's the word there? Scriptures. What's he talking about? They didn't have the New Testament yet, so what's he talking about? The Old Testament. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Those, that Old Testament you're reading, it points to me. So how could, you, how could you miss that? But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life, Um, I do not receive honor or glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my father's name and you don't receive me. But if another one comes in his own name, you'll receive him. But how can you believe you who receive honor? Listen, you who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. You're so worried about honor from each other that you don't worry about God honoring you. That's part of your problem. The Oscars, anyone? Okay. Uh, Do not think that I will will accuse you to my father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. All the first five books of the Bible. Moses, in whom you trust. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you not believe my words? Who is the source and the inspiration of every word down to the verb tense that's in here? Specifically, God. Which member of the Trinity? Holy Spirit. So who led Moses to put what he put down on the pages of the first five books that he wrote? Holy Spirit. Who's the member of the Trinity guiding Jesus, living, choosing to live as a man? Holy Spirit. So he's saying it's the same source. If you don't believe the Holy Spirit back here, what in the world makes you think you're gonna believe him here? If, if you, let me show you one last thing, then we're done. Man, I wanted to end earlier than this. Okay, Luke 16. 19 through 31. If you reject God's word, what he's already said, why in the world, what would make you think that you're gonna listen to what he says in the future? Look at Luke 16. That's Jesus' point in telling this story in Luke 16. Last story, 19 through 31. I don't think this is a parable. If you disagree with me, that's fine. But I don't think it's a parable because parables didn't name people. I think this is an actual story. I think this actually happened. He's naming names So this is another reason why the Jews reject their Messiah. Um, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died, Lazarus, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, I don't have time to get into what that probably is. I think it's a holding tank with saved and unsaved until Jesus, um, the cross and the resurrection, empties the tank. But that's, but that's, we're not sure what that was. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom with Abraham. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things and like Wise Lazarus received evil things, but now he is comforted and you're tormented. So the tables have turned. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house because I have five brothers that he may testify to them so that they don't come to this place of torment. Abraham said to them, no, he said, they have Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? They have the Old Testament. They already have God's word. They already have what the Holy Spirit wanted them to know. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, 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 no. Father Abraham, if somebody rises up from the dead and goes to my brothers, that's such a miracle, right? That would be amazing. And and witnesses to them, they will repent. No, they won't, verse 31. But he said, nope. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. So, if you reject what God says in his word, the scriptures, nothing will convince you. No amount of miracles, signs and wonders, any of that. Why? Because if it's legitimate, first of all, if it's a legitimate miracle, it's from the Holy Spirit. So if you don't believe the Holy Spirit back here, what, why would you believe the Holy Spirit and listen to him at any point? Why? Because he always sounds the same. He always says the same thing. He always has the same message that God never changes. Um. Reason number three, the other problem is that they turn the law into their idol. We saw that with the Pharisees. They worship the law itself instead of the giver of the law. If you go to Jerusalem today, there—well, you can't go literally today. If you went before last year to the hotels in Jerusalem and stayed there, there's something called a Jewish Sabbath elevator. I'm not making this up. And when you go there, I saw that, so I'm on my floor and I'm going down to the lobby to eat and I'm on the what, whatever, third or fourth floor. And there's this elevator off to the left and it's stopping at every floor. And it'll ding and it'll open. I think it said what floor it's on. And why? It's a Sabbath elevator and it runs during the Sabbath. Why would it need to do that? Because pushing a button on an elevator is violating the Sabbath principle of not working. So what you, I wrote it out of curiosity. So I got on it and I get in and you don't push anything, it won't do anything. So you just stand there and the door closes and it goes the next floor up announces the floor, closes, goes. And so you're on there, and then I just wrote it all up, and then I wrote it all back down to the eating area. And I'm thinking, this is good. That's it. What's their focus on? It's the rules, not the rule giver. You know, God might strike me with lightning if I reach out and push this, because that's that's work. That's too much. Remember what Jesus said? Man was not made for the Sabbath. I didn't make you so you could jump through these hoops for me. Sabbath was made for the man's for a man. Sabbath was made, was given to you as a directive of wisdom. Yes, it was part of the Old Testament law. Under the new covenant, it's this directive of wisdom because we need a down day. And so he says, this is a gift for you. If you're not going to do it under the new covenant, okay. But I mean, that's your, why would you not want to do it? You, you, you need a down day. That's, God took a down day and we're made in his image. So that's what he wants. So they still miss Jesus today. And a lot of times that third reason is still for the same reason. They're so obsessed with the law that they make the law an idol instead of, isn't that weird that you can make the law of God an idol? But they make that an idol instead of the lawgiver being their God. So during this time between the Old and New Testaments, the entire area was prepared in many different ways for the appearance of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And that appearance uh, of him we will look at next week with Matthew. So I will pray this out. If you have any questions, I usually do Q&A, but if you have any questions, just uh, hang out afterward. God, thank you for all that you've done. We can look at these silent years, uh, 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew, and we can think you were on vacation maybe during that time, if we're not careful. But you act and move in history, in all of human history, Uh, you don't just create us and then go off into your corner and and, uh, go on vacation and then come back when you feel like it. You're intimately involved in our lives, and that's amazing. And so I pray that we would be reminded of that when we look at what we call the silent years. I pray next week as we look at Matthew that your spirit would guide and bless uh, what we cover there. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.